Okay, good morning. Nice to see you this morning. So as we get started today, uh, you should have two handouts. One is just an informational blurb about our meeting dates from here to the, uh, to the end of the school year. Then we break for summer, so make sure you've got one of those. And then the other one is the handout for today. So I thought we would work through the book of Colossians. And uh, this is a wonderful book. Uh, For me, it's uh, one of my favorite to read in Greek because of the language that Paul uses. And it's it's one of his captivity letters. And... You know, when you think about the Church of Colossa, it was in Phrygia, um, but this particular church was not founded by Paul alone. It was connected with his first missionary journey, they think. And Colossians is closely tied to Philemon, a very short book, just kind of a one-chapter book. And also it's connected to Ephesians. And the same people that are mentioned in Philemon are also mentioned in Colossians. And I listed them on the sheet here. Archippus, Onesimus, uh, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. And the first three are described as inhabitants of Colossae. Paul's captivity letters, he wrote those while he was uh, under house arrest, perhaps. Uh, And they are Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, 2 Timothy, and Philippians. So Paul was arrested in Jerusalem at the end of A.D. 58, they think. And he was brought to Caesarea. And it was there that he was imprisoned for two years. They think it was 59 to 60 A.D. And the beginning of this captivity was no doubt the background of Paul's appeal to Philemon's compassion, now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, as he wrote. When we think about the date of composition, Scholars, New Testament scholars, Colossian scholars think it's most likely that Paul wrote Colossians, as I said, while in prison in Rome in 59 to 60 AD. And there are two ends of the spectrum when we think about God's time and creation. There is eschatology. Has anybody ever heard eschatology? Yeah. Yeah, end of times. And I think that's where people tend to go, right? Because, you know, we're always thinking about what's coming up ahead, right? And, you know, you often hear people say, oh, the world's getting really crazy. We got to be getting close, you know. Um, but there's also the, the beginning called protology. And, you know, you just don't hear as much about protology. But protology has an understanding of cosmology, the making of the universe. And problems of cosmology deal with the problem of evil. 
so there's different views of evil, like how it exists and how it begins. So the Hellenistic view or Hellenic view of evil, Socrates, a Greek, you know, the Greek philosopher Socrates said that the existence of moral evils is simply due to ignorance. Socrates said if people could see what is good, they would do it. In Greek philosophy, much that is defective in the world is due to matter. Matter is an imperfect medium for the realization of perfection. So the ultimate blessedness of humanity consists in escape from the body into the realm of pure ideas. So, you know, if you've ever studied in college platonic dualism, you know, that kind of thing, you know, it's the belief that things spiritual are good and holy, things that are material are evil. And... This dualism plays itself out even in Gnostic thought. So, you know, as I've said before, Gnosticism is like a broad term that it would be like Protestantism, you know. So you have, uh, with Protestantism, you have this, this label, but then you have all these groups that fall into Protestantism. Gnosticism is a similar thing. Uh, it's a broad category, and then you have different groups that fall within that, and they are all across the spectrum. And, you know, I talked about the forming of the canon a couple weeks ago, and so Valentinus, uh, he was one of those heretics that was uh, one of the reasons why they formed the canon. Uh, Valentinus, uh, his philosophy uh, was a form of Gnosticism. Uh, and so, but the, the general characteristic of Gnosticism is just that, that uh, what is spiritual is good and holy, but anything that is material is then inherently evil. And you can imagine what they did with that theologically then. Um, so within Gnosticism, there was an early form that, was likely, I think, around uh, in existence at the time of the New Testament, and it was called docetism. And the Greek, the Greek word docetist comes from the Greek word dakeo, which means to seem or appear. And what it is is it's like a mirage. Uh, you you think you see an oasis out there in the desert, but then when you really get there, there's nothing there but more desert. Um, the reason they were called docetists was because that was the mark of their heresy. I don't know if you ever knew this, but um, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church always labeled groups by their heresy. And so, you know, there's a lot of irony in, in a lot of that. So, you know, we got the, the, the moniker Lutherans because, you know, Luther, you know, to them was a heretic. Um, uh, Baptists were called Baptists, ironically, because they don't practice that, right? They don't believe the same thing about baptism. Uh, Methodists, because it's all about the method, right? So you get like, that's how everybody's named, right? You get the name, you know. And um, so like Docetists, for example... 
they, they said that when Jesus uh, suffered and, and died on the cross, he only appeared to suffer on the cross, that he didn't really suffer. And so they got the heresy dakeo to appear as a mirage. So basically, like, you know, to put it in modern terms, docetists looked at Christ's crucifixion as like a hologram, you know? What you see is not really what's going on. It's just, uh, you know. They, what the docetists said was that um, he removed himself from that part of the, the passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, if you think about the way this plays out then is this kind of heresy that denied matter, all things material or evil, think about what they would do with that in terms of Jesus. Who would Jesus be? Because we say he is, we confess he is God and human being, right? God and man, okay? So they would say if he is God, which would be spiritual and good and holy, he could never, would never actually attach himself to matter, which is evil. You see the trouble with this? And then go beyond that and think about sacraments. Water is material. Bread and wine are material. So Jesus institutes the sacraments as we see in the New Testament, uh, what, are they, what, are the, what, what would the Gnostics do with that? What would Docetists do with that? They would say that's not possible because God would never attach his spiritual gifts to water or bread and wine. Okay, so this, this Hellenic view of evil is, you see it in Socrates, you see it with Greek philosophy, you see it with Gnostics. And it's quite possible that Colossians is dealing with a heresy that was of some kind of Gnostic character. And I think that is why in Colossians, as we go through Colossians, we are going to see some really beautiful language that is very Christological and very sacramental. The Hebrew view of evil is different. And so Paul has the Hebrew view of evil. And so the Hebrew view of evil is in one's will. There are wills at work in the world whose purposes do not agree with the purpose of God. For Paul, a Hebrew thinker, the ultimate meaning of the world is found in the purpose of God. The meaning of evil is in the active will by conscious beings who are hostile to God. So it's very different. And this is a very practical thing for us because 
we see Gnostic thought all around us today. And, and it's even seen in some Christian circles. So to understand this and then to read Colossians in this light uh, enriches this book, this epistle, and uh, what Paul is, is trying to do. So the Colossian heresy, Paul references Jewish practices, festivals, and dietary scruples. These point to a Jewish element to the heresy. In opposing the heresy at Colossae, Paul laid great stress on the correct teaching concerning the person and work of Christ. He gave emphasis to terms and concepts such as fullness, pleroma, and filling, knowledge, which is gnosis, which is a divine knowledge, wisdom and understanding, and perfection. These are all words that would have been used by Gnostics. And in fact, uh, Gnostic comes from the word gnosis, which is right there for knowledge. And so the Gnostic, just kind of a general concept of Gnostic, was that you had to have special insight into the divine, and it was purely spiritual. And that special insight, you would get the true gnosis, the true knowledge. And so Paul is going to work on correcting these things. So it's thought that the heresy that he's, he's working against or responding to in Colossians was some form of Gnosticism. The foundation, and as I said, the foundational uh, teaching of all forms of Gnosticism is that since God is pure spirit, matter is inherently evil. This led to two reactions among Gnostics. One, a strict asceticism that denied material enjoyment. Or two, a licentiousness that concluded that the flesh is of no importance. Therefore, they lived indulgent lives. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, and this is, and you know, you see this today, right? I mean, this is alive and well today in our world. Um, there are modern Gnostics all over the place. And so these, these tenets of Gnosticism required its adherence, adherence to neglect or even to deny the incarnation of Christ and to interpret his death and resurrection in some other way. So there's just a brief introduction uh, to this text. So we're going to, if you would, open up to Colossians chapter 1, and we will see how far we get today. And let's ponder the question, what does it mean for us then? Well, there is the will of God. And this will of God is freeing for us as we struggle in faith and in life. Also, God's word comes with authority, but it's clear. You don't need special insight 
Uh, in Lutheranism, uh, in dogmatics, we talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, which is just a fancy word for the clarity of Scripture. It's, it's clear. Um, the apostles and the prophets provide us with, this, with the Scriptures, the knowledge of God, who He is, and what His will is for us. So we think about a few things as we look at this text. Holy, what we are made to be, and faithful, what we are given. Grace and peace, what Paul delivers to the church. And so we ponder, how can we find comfort in Paul's grace and peace? So let's go ahead and read chapter 1, and then we'll work our way through it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossa, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and, in, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him <clears throat> all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, when you just read that chapter based on the little introduction that I gave you, do you hear how he's connecting the physicality of creation with the spiritual very important. I mean, this is, so, you know, imagine the church in Colossa being caught in between what they've heard before from the apostles and the prophets and then the Gnostic sect that's wandering around trying to tell them that material things are evil. He's redirecting it in chapter one. You think, like, it talks about, talks about uh, Epaphras there in verse 7 as a servant. So someone in the flesh is a servant. Uh, it mentions then, I really saw it in verse 15, the preeminence of Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the icon in Greek. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So you see, creation is good and holy, and Jesus becomes part of it, right? By coming in the flesh, being the icon of the invisible God. All things hold, in verse 17, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So a physical body, right? The saints gathered together. And, and he plays on this. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In him, in his body. So you think about the incarnation, the fleshliness of the Son of God. In him, all the fullness of, the God, of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, in the flesh, he reconciles all things in heaven and on earth to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, by the blood, the blood 
spills. And it is in the spilling of the blood that all things are brought together. This is definitely, you know, the incarnational language is so strong here. And verse 21 gets to the Hebrew view of evil. I don't know if you caught that or not. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So, you know, none of this, oh, if you would have known, you would have done the right thing. Yeah, it's like you knew and you still, you still did the wrong things. You know, this is the, he's, he's correcting the Gnostic view. The, yes. Who is Eunomius that Gregory of Nyssa spoke against? Oh, I'm not really sure about his background. I mean, I I am aware of that, uh, of that writing but I don't recall who Eunomius was. Or what he said. Yeah, and I don't remember what he said, but it'd be something worth looking into. Yeah, in many cases, the, uh, these early Christians were reacting to Dos, you know, Gnostic uh, thought forms. Irenaeus, of course, you know. But uh, that'd be something for another, another time. It'd be good. Yes, Nancy. Yeah, so that was um, verse 24. Yeah, that is such an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, I, think, I think it probably has something to do with uh, something that Paul says to the Corinthians where he talks about uh, 2 Corinthians 1. So, when you think about the church and the life of a Christian, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So I, I, I'll speak as a pastor that and you can as a christian you've experienced this yourself it's not unique to being a pastor but when we go through trials and tribulations and trouble uh the angst can be terrible and then when we are comforted through the gospel and through the love and the mercy of christ and we are restored and we experience that peace, we have learned something very important. And we are no longer the same people. And what Paul is saying in both places, in Colossians 1 and 2 Corinthians 1, is that 
God uses our sufferings. So he teaches us through our sufferings. We grow as Christians ourselves and we grow nearer to Jesus and to heaven. We also then know how to help others through it. And this is part of divine wisdom. Another theme in Colossians is wisdom and what makes for wisdom. And as I have mentioned to you before, I mean, I'll say this a million times because it just always blows me away. But the Hebrew word for wisdom is hakam or hakma. And it's the word that's used for artisans, skilled craftsmen, uh, the people that build and adorn the temple walls and make the beautiful curtains and tapestries. And the basic idea of Hebrew wisdom is that it's always meant for someone else. It's we grow, we become wise, but then it's also then for others to find benefit and enjoyment and help. And I think that's what's happening. You know, he's saying that his apostolic ministry, in his sufferings, he is better able to help other people. And I can say this has been true in my ministry. The things that I have gone through actually help give insight so that I can help the people in, in my church, in our church, in St. John. And so there's, I think that's maybe, yes. And in the, I have the NIV study Bible, and it says basically that. It says it does not mean that there is a deficiency in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Rather, it means that Paul suffered afflictions because he was preaching the good news of Christ's atonement. Christ suffered on the cross to atone for sin, and Paul filled up Christ's afflictions by experiencing the added sufferings necessary to carry this good news to a lost world. There you go. His suffering, as you said, he was better equipped. Yeah, yeah. So go, just since we're on this, go to uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, and just take a look at this. Philippians 1, verse 9, and perhaps, hmm, okay, so let's start with verse 8, Philippians 1, verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So in verse 9, in Greek, he says, I, I, in this I pray in order that your love may abound more and more, and that love is divine love, agape, that your, your divine love may abound more and more in knowledge and in Greek and all experience. The Greek word is eisthesis. 
And what that what what is happening there is he Paul is giving you the the, the comprehensive notion of Christian learning in one verse because um, the knowledge is the word for gnosis, but it's epignosis. And so in Greek, what happens is there's prefixes and suffixes. And a prefix is always like a preposition. And so the prefix epi, epignosis, epi means if something comes upon you. So what he's saying is that the knowledge that you receive has come upon you. So the knowledge is from outside of you. It's anti-gnostic. It's not from within. It's not this hidden thing from within. But it is truly the proclamation of God's word that comes from outside and comes upon you. And you become wise unto salvation. So think about this in practical terms. You come to divine service. You come, you gather. The procession moves in. The scriptures are read. And as the scriptures are being read, you are the recipients of epignosis. God's divine oracles are coming from outside of you and to you and into you. That's the first part. The second part is the experience, the eisthesis. In the ESV, it's discernment. That's not a bad translation. But eisthesis is the experiential of, okay, you heard the word. Now you go out, right? You go out into the world. You go back to your kids, you know, working with your kids and grandkids, you go to work, you deal with all the different variables of life. Some are joyful, and, you know, the joyful things confirm the word, right? You're like, ah, life is great. And then you have these moments of uh, struggle and frustration, and you start to wrestle you wrestle with God and you wonder what is going on. But see, in all of this, so through the experience, the Word of God is being placed with your life and the things that happen. And this is how, and you know this, right? This is how often you'll think about something from Scripture as you're dealing with something. And then that Scripture will start to make sense whereas it didn't before, yes? I think it's wonderful the way uh, Paul is so sure of his calling and ministry to fulfill Christ's ministry, even in suffering. Yeah. In suffering. And it would be wonderful if every minister of God could, could have that same assurance, you know, that, that his purpose was to carry on Christ's ministry. Yeah. In such a wonderful way. He didn't seem to ever doubt it. Yeah. That's why he had that experience on the road to Damascus. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, as uh, you know, that road to Damascus is like a microcosm of, you know, his, you know, participation in 
the suffering, right? You know, in the three days without food or sight. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a, an awful lot going on. Yes. I have a question. The word that you said uh, was used in Colossians for wisdom um, in, in the Greek. Is that the same word that when the Old Testament was, was um, translated Greek? And then you read the Proverbs where it's referring to wisdom and the, the female. Um, is that the same word? Sophia. Yeah. Yep. So hakam in Hebrew, Sophia in Greek. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Proverbs is this great book about this very topic. So go back to Colossians 1. And, it, and if you have any questions, just raise your hand and I'll, I'll stop. So right off the bat here, so to kind of play on, carry on with Donna's statement about Paul's assurance. So he says right at the very beginning that he is an apostle. And apostolus, so Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, through the will of God and Timothy, the brother, brother Timothy, to those uh, saints in Colossia, saints and faithful brethren in Christ, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So what's interesting is, so grace is gift, right? And peace, grace and peace. Then in verse 3, he says, we give thanks. What's interesting about this is, we give, or I thank God, or how does that read? Well, okay, I guess in English here it should be, we give thanks. Yep, we always thank God. Okay, that word is Eucharist. So it's the same word for grace, charis, eucharistia, charis, eucharistia, okay? And again, the prefix you means really good. So really good gift, really good grace, but it's in verb form, we give thanks always. This word implies that the thanksgiving is a result of something outside of you. And so this is the nature of Eucharist, right? The Eucharist is that God comes under the bread and the wine to forgive, bless, strengthen, and love. What Paul is doing is he's emphasizing sacramental language. He is emphasizing the material and corporeal nature of the church's life. Anti-Gnostic. If he wasn't going to emphasize it, is there another way he could phrase it? There are different ways to phrase it. Um, so if he didn't intend the sacramental language, he could have phrased it completely different. Yeah, he, yeah. This is the beauty, and I, you know, sometimes I, 
I always wonder like how much Greek to give you because I just could just roll forever and you know everybody else you know they're like their eyes are like this going uh, where am I you know <laughs> but you know it's so beautiful the Greek language has so much there are so many words that um, that the Greek conveys that English has a hard time keeping up with. And so he, you know, he says we give thanks to God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ always concerning you, praying, hearing of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have uh, among all the saints. But look at the language, you know, there's um, faith, love, saint, hope. And notice how in verse 5, the hope is laid up for you in heaven. So the hope is pointing forward to your inheritance in heaven. But his apostleship, and this is, this is worth pointing out. The Hebrew view of apostleship is in the body. It is in the flesh. And God chose to convey his word to people. And then it continues. And the Hebrew equivalent of apostle is shaliak. And this meaning is richer than just simply a sent one, like apostle would literally mean a sent one, one who is sent out. But Shaliak in the Old Testament was an authorized representative of an individual. So an authorized representative of a king or a queen. And the identifying characteristic is one of authority. So an authority in the flesh. <clears throat> and the rabbis said of a Shaliak, the one sent by a man is as the man himself. And there's a great example in the Gospels. So let's take a look at this. Look at Luke 7, 1 to 10. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but I have had it happen where somebody that, that knows something about the Bible will come and try to like pin me in a corner, you know, and say, these don't agree See, now what do you say about your divine word of God? And so take a look at Luke 7, starting at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews. That's important. Asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now go to Matthew 8, verse 5, the parallel account to this. Matthew 8, verse 5. Now remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus, so it's more of a Gentile audience. Matthew is writing to Jewish converts to Christianity. So Matthew 8, verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Notice the difference. In Luke's account, there were elders and friends who were sent. They were shaliacs. But Matthew records it as the Jewish people would understand. He says, the centurion came to me, when in fact it was a shaliac. Now think about this in terms of the church's life today. When your pastors pronounce absolution upon you, they are shaliacs. So this is why Luther says in different places that when the called servants of Christ deal with us, right, according to Christ's way, it is Christ that you hear. So when you come into church Sunday and you confess your sins and then the pastor announces holy absolution upon you, you hear Jesus because the pastor is like a shaliac. Same thing then, when Paul mentions his apostleship, what he is doing is he is indicating that you are hearing the very divine oracles from Christ himself and we are to receive it as such. These are not words of a mere man, but they are the teachings of Christ. And so this gives sense to everything about us then as we come into the church 
and the holy awe and the mystery and the reverence and the beauty. It all comes out of this recognition that when we hear the word of God, we hear Jesus himself speaking to us. And this text is beautiful. So back to Colossians. Boy, so much to talk about. Um, in verse 9, Colossians 1, 9, uh, he, he talks about being filled. You were filled with the knowledge, with uh, knowledge and his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So as it reads in English, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he's connecting the divine with your personhood. So he's, he's making the connection to we are in the body and yes, we have sins, but we are forgiven and cleansed and renewed. And then this divine word that comes from Paul gives meaning and sense to who we are. And so we are the holy people of God. And this goes back to uh, when he says, where is that? That we are in Christ. Yeah, uh, did you say verse 23? Yeah, okay, so there's that. And then also at the beginning in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So yeah, there's uh, verse 4, verse 14, verse 28. And so we are placed inside of Jesus. It's baptismal language. And it shows that there is a harmonious relationship that Christians have with Jesus. And this, this goes back to Romans 6 when uh, it talks about, uh, therefore, if we were united with Christ in his death, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And the word united in Greek is symphitos, which literally means to be planted together. So you plant two vines side by side, and what do they do? They grow like this. And so this is your life. So when he uses this language, en Christo, you, you, body and soul, are grafted into Jesus, and you are holy. And, you know, this intimacy uh, is hopeful for us as we think about uh, our needs and our desires and our struggles, um, our pain. Uh, Jesus is not unaware of the things that we experience. You know, and this goes back to, uh, as Donna mentioned, you know, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Do you remember what, uh, what Jesus says? 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's response is probably, what are you talking about? I, you're right. He's persecuting Christians, you know. So maybe Paul's thinking, what does this have to do with you? Well, this is how intimate Jesus is with his people. So, you know, you're, and so you're never alone. You're always neatly placed within Jesus. And so, you know, you think about this in terms of the design of the Trinity, the design of being in Christ. Um, relationships, all relationships are divine, defined by the Holy Trinity. So in Greek, there is this term that I have on page three, uh, just past the halfway point on page three. The Greek word is perichoresis, right underneath the word how. How are we... How are relationships defined by the Holy Trinity? Perichoresis is interpenetration or alternation. And this is how the Trinity works together. So, you know, you have one God, three persons. So the three persons are distinct, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one essence. And Perichoresis, we get the word choreography from perichoresis. And so sometimes it's defined as like dancing. And so I've never done ballroom dancing. Has anybody ever done ballroom dancing? But, you know, you, I know we were talking about dancing and the kids at school. And, you know, truly, like, you need that person, right? If you're going to ballroom dance, this is what I'm told. I have no idea. But my wife's always trying to get me to take ballroom dancing lessons. But. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but this whole idea of, you know, alternation and, okay. And so who we are in our relationships is defined by this perichoresis. So just as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are dancing together, working together, creator, redeemer, sanctifier, so the same thing then gives sense to marriage. So the two shall become one flesh, but you still are, right? So it's, it, you're one flesh while at the same time uniquely your own people, but now you're joined together. And so how you relate together is at work. Our relationships with other people, then, as Christians, we are joined to Christ, but then we also have our own individual ways about us. And this, so this interpenetration, this perichoresis from the Trinity, actually plays itself out in Paul's language about the church in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about how. Uh, Together we are one body. There's the usia, right? The essence. Individually we are many members. Hence the hypostasis, the substance, the individual substance. And so you think about the church. We are in Christ. So Paul says in, in chapter 1, we are in Christ. We are one. We are one body. 
we're inseparably linked with Jesus. And we share this holy community together. But we also then are individual Christians who are uniquely designed by the Lord with our own gifts. And the Lord then uses us in that capacity, in the flesh. And that's what's really important. You know, I, as, as, as Christians and as Lutherans, you know, we're, we're always looking at, you know, saint and sinner, the gospel, you know, we, we think about sin. And yes, the flesh is sinful, but we cannot forget, ought not forget, that we are also redeemed in Christ And by being redeemed in the flesh, we are his holy people. And so there's a lot of that going on in Colossians chapter 1. And you get this sense, and I see I'm out of time, but... um, (laughs) Yeah, look at that, I'm getting there, yeah. (laughs) Um, Take one quick look Boy, you know, we're going to have to continue with chapter one next week, okay? <laughs> um, because the language gets really good when we get to, uh, to verse 24. Um, but in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, uh, Peter talks about movement, 2 Peter 3, 9. So this is the Christian notion of our journey and so he says in Second Peter 3, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And then in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this movement. Okay, so the Christian life is always one of movement. And we'll stop there for today. And we'll, we'll keep going next week. And let's go ahead then uh, for, let's, let's join, let's pray. Uh, pray the collect and then close with the benediction. O God, you see that of ourselves, we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.